right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the No Laying Up Podcast, an especially fun episode for you today. Got a chance to chat uh, via Zoom last week with Stephen Curry. He was visiting Callaway. He is uh, officially part of the Callaway family, and uh, those guys were nice enough to arrange some time for for us to speak and uh, talk some golf, talks a little bit of hoops, some of the similarities, the differences, what it's like to play in you know professional golf events when you are a MVP of a different professional sport, which I find fascinating. Uh, Stefan's got a lot of stuff going on in the game of golf and a lot to talk about. So much that I actually forgot to ask him about his PGA Tour event that he's hosting uh, next year. I'm not exactly sure why. I'd heard rumors about it and kind of honestly forgot where that left off, but uh, there's enough enough here to uh, to unpack, and I, I think you guys will really enjoy it. Of course, No Laying Up is brought to you by Precision Pro Golf. As DJ showed this past weekend, playing your best starts with hitting greens and regulations, and if you want to play your best, uh, and Randy requested this get reinserted into the ad copy, just like Big Randy did at Avon Fields in Cincinnati, they need to play with confidence. Precision Pro Golf range finders help golfers pick the right club, swing with confidence, and hit more greens. So, best of all, the holiday sales have begun, and Precision Pro's best-selling rangefinder is on sale for $40 off. That's the NX9 Slope. That's what we're using at Jack's Beach when we're traveling for tourist sauce, or, of course, when Randy is setting records at Avon Fields in Cincinnati. The NX9 Slope comes with a two-year warranty, free lifetime battery replacement services, all part of the Precision Pro Care Package that delivers the number one customer service in the industry. So go to precisionprogolf.com where the Holloway discounts have arrived early. Add the NX9 Slope Rangefinder to your golf bag for $40 off. Swing with confidence, hit more greens with Precision Pro. And without any further delay, let's get to our interview with Stephen Curry. All right, Stefan, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, I want to start right away with background before we came on starting recording. You already given me a bunch of excuses about how you been, haven't been playing a lot, so I have a feeling I know how this is going to go, but I, I got to know some background. I think it is important how you got into golf, how much you played growing up, how all of this started happening before we get into some of the events we've uh, we've seen you play in. No doubt. Um, yeah, I've, I've got all the disclaimers and qualifiers for my game. I got you know those one-liners locked up, but I started playing back in uh, – I was about eight or nine. My dad, he played 16 years in the NBA, so it's kind of his summertime hobby. It's a normal kind of father-son type of situation. He'd take me out. I'd drive a golf cart. He'd cut down a little putter that I'd go hit with. Um, and then I started to get more and more uh, passionate about it, trying to learn how to play. And by 10, 11, I was playing full rounds on my own. Um, play a little high school golf for three years. And then from there, I, just, I mean, I've been bit by the bug ever since. And it is one of you know things I look forward to doing the most when I'm outside of the court. And there's a lot of similarities to, you know, the, the on-court, like basketball competition or what I used to experience in the, in the league and, and how I kind of transitioned that to trying to take everybody's money on the course. So it's good. Well, I was going to kind of say this one for later, but I, I want to understand what the golf culture is like during the NBA season, right? Because, I mean, I, you know, your guys' season kind of your typically goes into June for you guys, but, you know, it releases into summer and you can play golf in the summer. 
How often are you playing during the season? Are you traveling with clubs? Do you need like a certain time period on a road trip to be able to play on the road? Do you have a set course, you know, every city you go to? How's that work? All, all of the above. I think uh, the best way to explain it is um, I, I guess our team, we earned a little bit of more freedom over the last five, six, seven years to be able to kind of even manipulate the schedule on road trips a little bit to, to bake in some golf windows. So we'll... I think probably play like twice a month during the season, which is solid, uh, mostly on the road. Our coach Kerr is amazing at uh, if we go into a city, we'll play that night. You know, we we'll, might have an early practice the next morning, but if, if we have an off day, he'll give us a window to go play in the morning and then catch the plane to go to the next city. And then we have the, the Warrior golf team. When we're in our championship run, you know, myself, Andre, Iguodala, Clay Thompson would play. We'd have some front office guys that would go out. So we had a, a crew, whenever that window opened up, we was, the group text was going, hey, what time are we playing? Where are we going? So there's a there's a golf culture for sure in our team, and it's growing across the league. I think every year I find like five, ten guys that are either asking me about what clubs they should get or where they should get lessons or, are, hey, is your coach cool with y'all bringing the clubs on the plane type stuff? So we get all those questions. It's it's growing by the, by the year, and it's pretty awesome to know how much, you know, that other people are enjoying the game as much as I do. Because I think that was one thing that, especially for golf fans, that stuck out about the last dance is how often Jordan was like, as soon as something was over, it's like, all right, no, no, we're going to go play yeah. golf. We're going to go play golf. And it, it just <laughs> seems to be like a thing that is continually growing. I see Andre Guadalla on Twitter all the time. He's obviously, you know, a huge golf fan. But, you know, I, I got to be honest, I didn't really understand like the the depth of your game until you played in the LMA Classic in 2017. So what was, you know, you touched on high school golf, but have you had you played in any golf tournaments since high school before you uh, took on that challenge? Since high school, the only tournament we play is American Century up in Lake Tahoe. I played in that, I think, maybe five or six summers out of out of the eight before I played in the LMA. And that one is a different experience because I think if I'm on my game, I should be like, you know, top eight favorite to win, even though I haven't won it yet. But when you get on the LMA Classic on the web.com at when it was a corn fairy now, like I, I'm 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 a realist. I know how far my game is from a professional that earns money and is, you know, trying to carve out a career in this game. But I feel like I could hold my own. So I had like this kind of irrational confidence in that respect. But uh when I got, you know, to the to the first day First, I should say I did the practice round and all that, really learning how they approach like the preparation for the week and how they I put so much stress on like the practice rounds, like trying to shoot a score. And they're like, yo, you're going to burn yourself out before. Yeah, that's not <laughs> before it. Thursday, Friday. That's not it. I learned that after like the first six holes. I was mad. I made a bogey or something <laughs> like, hey, you know, relax. Um, so it, it was uh, it was a, uh, such a cool experience. And I played in five finals been in play in front of 19,000 fans and crazy, you know, adrenaline rushes out in the court. There is absolutely nothing to, no way for me to really express how nervous I was on that first tee when they called my name. I, I damn near uh, blacked out on, uh, on the first tee shot. I just hoped I hit it and, and hoped it got in the air. It was, uh, it was really kind of an out of body experience. So well, that's not your sport. It's not your sport, you know. Like basketball nah. is your sport. You go just, you know, you go play. <laughs> this is not your thing, and you know, you're doing it in front of a ton of eyeballs. There's got to be that kind of feeling. One hundred percent. The other thing that I learned, which I don't think people appreciate, watching these guys week after week after week, is I was exhausted, like yeah. mentally and physically. I mean, walking the course, being in that mode for five hours straight, like pre-round, during the round, post-round. 
Like it's uh, getting in golf shape. You know, there's athletes out there, but it's a different experience of staying, you know, locked in and engaged, and all the different ways that they approach kind of being on top of the game. It's it's uh it's pretty awesome, man. Yeah, and they pick up and move on to the next state, city, whatever it is, the very next week, and usually usually don't miss a beat. Well, before I build you up too much, I got to issue at least a bit of a mea culpa. So first, I do want to say I was a huge in huge support of you playing in the in the Ellie May because I appreciate I that. It, <laughs> it's great for the event. It's great for fans. Great for golf, but not everyone. You know, some people have kind of bad attitudes toward that towards that kind of thing. I'm sure you heard at least. Some of that, oh, yeah. but I also said before you teed it up, I was like, you're going to do us all in the golf media world a great favor because you're going to be help us highlight the difference between a scratch player and professional. And I said, if you broke 80, that'd be a great achievement. And I still believe that. So you go out and shoot 74 and throw this huge curveball. And now I got to backtrack and try to, you know, everyone's <laughs> like, see, the scratch player is not that far off. I'm like, no, 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 you don't understand. Like, this was a crazy, impressive achievement. So did you do better? You shot 74, 74 in 2017. Did you do better than you expected to, honestly? See, that's like the 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 teaser question for every golfer is like, yeah, I did better leading up to it, but in the round, I'm like, damn, I left seven shots out there. <laughs> like, <Yeah. laughs> if I could have, if I could have, you know, just uh, played a little smarter, made a couple more putts, like I, I might have been, you know, teasing with the cut. So I definitely, definitely keeping it real. I definitely played better than I thought. It was one of those I had, you know. Two or three bad tee shots that might have, you know, taken myself out of a out, out of position or whatnot. But I found a way to just, you know, save bogey and kept my morale up. And I knew in those moments that was a huge victory where it could go. I appreciate you not mentioning what happened in 2018 in the, in the second round. So we're gonna uh, get there. We're gonna get there. I'm not done with that. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it was uh, it was amazing to to play a solid 18 holes and then back it up the next day knowing. I had set the bar really high and the conversation around my game going into the tournament is like, oh, you're taking up somebody's spot, this and that, um, which we all know that's not, not, not true in the case, but highlighting, you know, how, how hard it is to make it to the PGA tour and what these corn fairy guys go through just to make it to that level. But then the golf world started going crazy and hyping me up and congratulating me and all that type of stuff. And, and I did a press conference afterwards and Jack Nicholas is talking about my game. I'm like, yo, this is absolutely insane. So to back it up the next day with another another great round was awesome. And then shoot 71 the, the I next beat year. One like, of, I, beat, I, beat one of the, I beat one of the guys. Yeah, you beat Sam yeah, Ryder. I know. Day. I saw or, that too. <laughs> that's my guy. <laughs> you didn't want to name him by my name, guy. but I was willing to do so. Well, it seemed like the pros... His, 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 his mom, his mom found me in the uh, in the clubhouse afterwards, and she was mad at me. So I'm, I still apologize now. <laughs> well, I talked to some of the Jacksonville guys that live down here. They were like, as soon as they finished the round, they went to check the app to see. Like, I, I hope I at least beat him. I'm never going to hear the end of it. If you <laughs> but uh, so, like, you shoot 71 the next year, and you you mentioned uh, I I was going to mention the second round 86 because I think at I think that kind of puts the other rounds into perspective, right? Because that 86, a round like that is looming. It's not far off. Like it, It's not out of the question for a scratch-ish player to go out there and do something like that. So the fact that you had three rounds in one bad round is still like, it makes me even appreciate the good rounds even more. I don't know if you had any of that perspective. I'm sure things were moving very quickly that last time out, but it had to have helped that you had proved it in the three prior rounds. Oh, 100%. I'm glad it was the last one, so... Right. To your point, I could put it in, keep it in perspective, but uh, and that was one where you know you go through all type of experiences out there on the course when it's just you and you got to figure it out on the fly if your swing's not there, if the timing's off, a couple of bad breaks, whatever it was. So 
you know, even I think on the third hole, I made a nine on my the second round of the second year. And that hit me in a whole spiral. And I was actually proud of myself that I made three birdies coming down the stretch over the last, you know, 15 holes just to kind of keep my morale up and, and make it fun. Because like you said, those rounds, those, they happen. You hate when it's in front of, you know, the golfing world, if you will. And uh, at that point, shooting 71, I think I was three shots off the cut. And I was like, all right, this this could be the this could be the year. Yeah, you were thinking you were thinking about the <laughs> cut. That, your mindset changed. I can see that. I can see that. But is is there anything to you know kind of shooters mentality? And, and you know, golf and basketball are obviously different, but there's some similarities as well. There's got to be days when your shot's not there, but you can kind of try to shoot your way out of it. Golf doesn't quite work like that. No, I see you shaking your head. It, it's it's a little different just because. Like in, in the game, if I have a turnover and make a bad shot or whatever, I can affect how somebody else is playing. If it's a defensive thing, if it's a mental thing um, and try to even the playing field, even on my bad nights, I can kind of bring the opponent closer to me. And in the golf world, if you're not on, like there's nothing really you can do. You can't you can press and try to go after every pin. It can make it worse. It can make it better, whatever the case is. Uh, but you got to go through that experience a bunch of different times to know how you respond and react in those moments and what it's going to take to get out of it a little bit quicker because it's going to happen. So I think in uh, in basketball, especially how reactive it is and fast paced, like it's it's easier to move on from, you know, a missed shot or, you know, a couple in a row uh, versus in golf in my experience. Well, it seems like the professionals, both that you played with and anyone else that you interacted with that week, couldn't have been more supportive and kind of, you know, what, what kind of experience was that like? Kind of a rallying around you as you were playing in it both years? Is that is that sound about right? Yeah, it was awesome, man. I'm so appreciative of, of that response because I was outside of my element and I was trying to obviously, you know, play well, compete, not embarrass myself, but also to your point, highlight, you know, one, my love for the game and what it takes to be a professional out there and, and what the difference is. And, you know, I was out in the range hitting, there's pros coming up, you know, congratulating me on, on the great round that day or, you know, trying to get some side bets going to try to keep me locked in or conversations on social media and all that type of stuff. And people shot me out for how well I played. Uh, that meant a lot for sure. And that's part of why, you know, all the other stuff that I want to do in the game of golf to kind of share that with others in terms of how I got into the game at such an early age. Like, not saying everybody's going to be a professional playing on the Corn Ferry Tour or whatever, but just the world of golf in general, it's it's a it's a really cool vibe. Yeah, I want to I want to talk to you some on on uh, as well about some of the some of the things you're doing for for the game of golf. But got a kind of weird. I'm not going to do a lot of basketball questions, but a weird crossover basketball golf question. I mean, we know golfers do track man, they do slow motion swing analysis, they do all these things. I don't know if you get involved in any of that as well in your golf game, but is there any of that in basketball? Do you ever study like the scientific approach to your jump shot, the arc, the anything? Or do you ever watch your, you know, your shot on film and say something's not right? Is there any of that in basketball? And that might be a dumb question, but I'm curious. Nah. Analytics is growing in every sport and every year there's some new technology, some new approach to to analyzing the game and optimizing performance, right? So, I mean, you see with DeChambeau and, and those guys are who are really trying to stretch the limits of where they can take their game. And basketball is very similar. I don't think it's as widespread right now. You separate player experience versus like front office and GM and, and that type of vibe. But for me as a shooter, there's like one machine that can tell you your, your, your shot arc. And I used it from time to time where you can kind of dial in mechanics. Um, there's not much like video work on, you know, how, where I place the ball and, and that type of vibe. It's more of a feel thing and being able to work out, 
um, the kinks with you know getting in the gym and just getting shots up. But over the course of the season, there's a lot of data now that's uh, being used on a daily basis in terms of, you know, we'll call it load management, but rest and the uh, uh, being able to manage a full 82 game season and the travel and all that type of stuff with how much, you know, we exert ourselves on the court during our 48 minutes. So the more information I think is is good as long as it's applied the right way and it doesn't overwhelm, you know, the individual athlete to where they're thinking about anything, but just putting the ball in the basket at the end of the day. But there is a place for all of that in, uh, in terms of getting better. Does it, do you do any of that with golf? Do you do track man? Do you do any, uh, any video announcement? I know you're at Callaway today. Are you, yeah. are you there getting dialed on equipment? Take me there. Uh, it, very sporadic. And I think part of it is cause I just don't know what I'm doing when I, if I try to do it myself. And so I have a, I have a simulator. I, I use it just to, you know, get reps in. I really, that's the thing. I need to learn how to practice in, in general in golf. Like that's something that, uh, is kind of foreign to me on the approach of, how you become methodical about, you know, getting better at the game. For me, getting better just means playing more. And that's not necessarily the case. And so I haven't really crossed that hurdle of like practice techniques. And I mean, well, we all know we don't have a lot of time if you're play, trying to play golf, like there's kind of a trade-off. But if I got 15 minutes, I go to the range, like what can I actually do to work on X, Y, Z? I haven't really figured that out yet. Yeah. What uh, what's what's your home game look like? How how often are you playing during the summer? Where do you play? Who do you play with? And uh, kind of if you well, you can even drop like what's your low score at your home course as well. Uh, so the low score at uh, home course Cal Club out in San Francisco, I've got sixty six twice games. We got pretty standard, you know, just show up and there's going to be a game, you know, happening in some way, shape, or form. I play probably twice a week during the off season. Sometimes if uh, I got a little freedom. I might be able to sneak three in there, but uh, it's a uh, it's part of the routine of one. You know, when I'm training and uh, getting ready for the season, it's always great to get out and just get some kind of mental clarity and, and get away from basketball and golf is the way that I you know I, I do that. So it works that I'm actually pretty good and I get to play um, a good amount. A quick break here to check in with our friends at Elijah Craig. I'm going to be honest with you guys. In the copy, it says to say here, uh, last night I mixed a great old-fashioned. I got to admit, I did not do this last night, uh, and there's a reason why. I've been going maybe a bit too hard on the Elijah Craig Masters Week. We were obviously not kidding. You saw it on the live show. We were drinking this on a nightly basis. I have learned how to make a great old-fashioned at home, which you can go just Google Elijah Craig old-fashioned. It's got a lot of great information on how to make a great one. Uh, The Elijah Craig small batch bourbon has rich flavor and full body. It's perfect for mixing this classic whiskey cocktail. Just need a little bit of sugar to enhance the sweetness and some bitters to bring out the spice. And I'll bet you didn't know the Old Fashioned dates back to the 1880s. used to be considered a morning cocktail. Uh, You can garnish it with an orange swath or a brandied cherry. And again, for more information on how to master the Old Fashioned, go to ElijahCraig.com and discover the greatness within. No Laying Up is brought to you by Elijah Craig Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey, Bardstown, Kentucky, 47% alcohol by volume. Elijah Craig reminds you to think wisely, drink wisely. Let's get back to Stephen Curry. Well, all right. I want to know. I think feel like this is a kind of an underreported story, in the, at least in the world of golf, as to you know what you've done with the Howard Golf Team, and, and I want to go back to uh, the origin of that story, how it ended up, uh, you know, how you ended up reviving their golf program, and uh, why that really, you know, their story resonated with you. 
it, it happened kind of out of nowhere. So about a year and a half ago, I went to uh, to Howard to do a screening for a documentary that we were we were launching um, called Emmanuel. And we had a bunch of students come. We did a panel afterwards talking about uh, the tragedy that happened in Charleston, South Carolina back in 2016. And as part of the Howard University culture, there's so many talented students there that have so many different passions. And uh, after we did our panel, there's a you know a row of uh, students down at the front of the stage, and I went to go when you could go actually talk to people in person. I went to go say hi to everybody, and uh, you know somebody was interested in designing shoes, and somebody wanted to get into production, and somebody had an idea for a, a new restaurant you know uh, business. And I got to this guy named Otis Ferguson the fourth, who uh, was passionate about the game of golf, was kind of uh, directing their club team that they had, but he had been trying to exhaust every effort to bring back, you know, the Division One program that was decades, uh, you know, removed from 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 the program. So uh, once he said, you know, Howard Golf, and he had, you know, this idea of of, of what it would take to get it back, wheels started turning about what that actually looked like and what it would take to to get that, you know, support and get that off the ground and running. And about six months later, we had a plan. I was making a, a significant contribution to to the program, and hopefully, over the next six years, we'll be able to create an endowment that will, you know, create scholarships for both men and women to go play, you know, for the Howard Bison golf team. You know, we want to create a marquee program around golf, and we have an amazing coach, Sam Perrier, who is taking the reins for this first season, and and uh, we got a lot of talented golfers that are on the team, and some of that are interested in, in, in playing over the next, you know, couple of years, and. Uh, the goal, obviously, we want to get some more uh, access to the game. Some, uh, hopefully, some uh, minority communities that I know there's talent there, but they don't necessarily have the resources and the access to create a pipeline and a north star of like I want to play for Howard Golf and and do it in a different way. Get some some uh, some tour professionals through the program, hopefully, but also just expose them to the world of golf because I think a lot of people kind of get wrapped up in seeing what the product on TV is and, and and thinking about, you know, what that what that wide range is. But the world of golf and the business of golf, there's so many opportunities and ways to get it, you know, create a meaningful career. It's just about, you know, that awareness and that access and and uh, people being able to lean in. So Howard Golf is a is a, a, a great start in that direction. So a couple things on this whole story kind of, you know, I guess captivated me a little bit. One, I'm sure you get approached about things like this all the time. And you just mentioned at this specific screening, you know, people are coming up to you saying this, this, and this, this kind of idea. And two, you're, you play professional basketball, not golf. And three, as far as I can tell, I don't know what your, your link to DC is or, or why Howard in particular. So, you know, you kind of touched on some of the reasons there, but, but what was it necessarily, or why did you feel the need to get involved and to help, uh, you know, pro promote the game of golf in this way? The, the first two points are uh, just, again, my passion for golf and wanting to find a creative lane that's authentic to me to grow the game and grow access to the game that can reach down to, you know, the next generation because I know how much uh, opportunity there is there. Um, and then any time that you can support an HBCU, I mean, we have a lot of conversations about, you know, how impactful those universities are, the amount of you know, talent that comes out of those schools um, year after year, even after this summer and all the, you know, social climate that, that we've, we've, we've been navigating. I think it's, uh, 
it's an opportunity, one, where golf, I don't think, has that been able to really storytell around and really create meaningful traction and energy. But that's a total disservice to, you know, so many people. And so it all kind of checked a lot of boxes in terms of where I could really meaningfully make an impact. And I think the sky's the limit for what this can truly mean. Like I said, we wanted eventually the North Stars to get, you know, a, a men or women uh, golfer on the tour. Um, but at the end of the day, there's so many partners and people that want to uh, to lean in on growing the game in a meaningful way that can you know, provide resources, whether it's uh, internships throughout the golf world and, and the business of golf that uh, will, again, create, you know, access and awareness or whether it's uh, finding just, in, I, I think, authentic and, and clever ways of telling the stories around how awesome HBCUs are in general. Um, it's not just Howard. I'm starting with Howard, but there's so many other HBCUs that have amazing golf programs or uh, the potential to uh, to lean in and really invest in that. So uh, for me, it was, it was it was kind of divine intervention to your point around there are a lot of opportunities that come, you know, get thrown out at you and a lot of different ways where you could really, you know, lean in from your time and resources perspective. But this one checks so many different boxes. It, it, it made sense. Yeah, you, you kind of mentioned there the goal being, you know, tour players would be would be an ultimate goal. But I, I think you touched on it there, too, as well, that there's so many just benefits from the game of golf, just being involved in the game of golf, access to so many different people. That's why I always encourage, you know, young young people, go caddy. Like, you get out on the golf course, you get to meet influential people, you got people that'll, you know, help connect you with jobs. Like, there's just so much, uh, you know, power and uh, opportunity around around the game of golf that uh, I'm I'm glad to see. I guess you know you t I read an article. You said uh, I think there's work being done all around the country to make golf more affordable, more fun, more approachable. What else is out there that inspires you in that regard? What do you see being done that you know you want to help implement in in any way in the game of golf? Well, it's getting younger and it's getting. Uh to a point where, you know, I've been in plenty of country clubs across the country. Thankfully, I mean, that's part of the benefit of, you know, being able to travel to amazing places and play golf and to your point around networking and really influential people that are ingrained in the game. I think there's so much interest in how we can change the culture of it. Obviously, respect tradition, but change the culture of golf where it's just fun and it's less pretentious and less... Uh, you know, this ideal that's that nobody really has access to on a grand scale and the kind of elitist type of perspective. So for me, that is the mission. It, it, it's not going to happen overnight, but I think you can kind of feel a change. Even some of the guys that show up on tour that come from different backgrounds and creating more uh, of a pipeline of, to your point, like, you know, you got five, six, seven-year-old kids that you don't have to go you know, have a dad that's a membership at, at a certain club just to get a club in your hand and go play, um, creating safe places for those kids to, to get access and then follow through where we know how much golf teaches about ourselves and character and, and developing your personality and your ability to hang out with different types of people from different walks of life. Like I could talk about it for days. It's just awesome to know that there's a opportunity and a change in the tide that respects tradition, but also break, makes it more accessible and, and, and young and fun. Yeah, I can tell from, you know, reading about Otis and, and, and your endeavor there that I was like, all right, we got to get up to Howard. We got to get up there and play with those guys, make a video. Like, no I, that, got, that got me all hyped up. Like, 
we got to make that happen. I want to know too, on a different note, like who are some of the dudes in the NBA that you've you've seen kind of get caught super hard by the golf bug? Like I see Kent Bazemore's out there all the time on the golf course. He's you know he's all in on the game. And we mentioned Andre Iguodala, but who are some of the other guys that might surprise us? You know, either super new to the game or kind of had some amateur game and is starting to get better and better. No doubt, uh, Kyle Lowry was one we played probably four years ago at All Star Weekend in New Orleans. I didn't know he played, and I saw his game then. And I saw him last summer in Tahoe, and it was night and day different. And uh, he was a guy that is he's he's more of a, a bug in terms of road trips, like trying to look at the schedule and be like, all right, where where are my golf days? I got home home games, road games, and golf days. So like, <laughs> where does that all fit in? You mentioned Kent, my brother, actually. And when we were growing up, he never really, if me and my dad played 10, 12 times, he probably played two or three. He never really got into it up until about three, four years ago. J.R. Smith is one that uh, I don't know a lot of people know loves the game. He cleaned out that Pine Valley pro shop. <laughs> I, I, there's nothing left in that, in his size in that pro shop. That was an impressive effort. Uh, it's uh, So those guys uh, off the top of my head are the ones that are kind of leading the NBA golf culture, if you will. And uh, But every year I've had three rookies already that have asked me, do I have an extra set of clubs? Where can I go get lessons in the Bay? Where can I go play? And uh, they're getting into it. So I can only imagine that's going to continue to grow. I know the answer. I know at least one answer to this question. And so it might be, uh, it might have to give you, two, have to give me two courses, but like the number one course or, or maybe the top two courses, because uh, I, I think alphabetically and uh, a course that we're going to see a lot this week is one of the yeah. <laughs> a place you've got to go, travel, and play that uh, has been especially uh, exciting for you. Yeah, Gus is, yeah, we can just, just mention that and throw it away. <laughs> that's a separate uh, yeah. category. <laughs> Uh, Kings Barnes in Scotland is one of my favorite, uh, courses I've ever played. Just obviously being in Scotland and knowing, you know, the home of golf, but, uh, there's something unique about that place mixed with the history of, you know, St. Andrews and Carnoustie and Glen Eagles and all that that's over there. Kings Barnes is one of my, my absolute favorites. Outside of that, I would probably say, well, it's in, it's in our backyard, but it's Pebble Beach is, it's like that. It's like that. It's uh, <laughs> it's like no no shot is boring or every view that you have on the course, you kind of feel like you're, you're in another world. So um, those two top of my list with Augusta for sure. What? Uh, tell me about your trip to Scotland. Was it a specific golf trip that you were on? Where else did you play over there? Yeah, it took my dad for his 50th birthday um, about five or six years ago now. And uh, so, yeah, we did mostly the the east, east coast of Scotland right near uh, – so right near St. Andrews, we did old, the old course. We did Carnoustie. We did Glen Eagles. Um, the Fairmont Hotel, that's right there. I think they just played a uh, um, a tournament on a European tour uh, yep. at the Kiddix, I think it was called, or one of those two courses. So we played that in Kings Barnes. And so that was uh, – and you go in the summer, we went in June, and it was one of the wildest experiences. You heard about how much daylight there is. And, like, so we go play Glen Eagles and then come back to the hotel and play another round at that course. And it'd be, like, 10 o'clock, and we'd still be out there grinding. So that was actually probably one of my first actual golf trips where we were out of the country. It was pretty awesome. What's it like for for someone like you, you know, to go around in Scotland? I mean, is it different? Do you get a different reception? Do people recognize you nearly as much in, in a foreign country like Scotland as they would in the States? I'd have to go back now that we got three chips under our belt because that was right like 2014, right before we won our first one. So I could kind of, you know, I'm, I'm 6'3". I don't, like, walk, I don't walk in a room and everybody's like, oh, who's that? Uh, so 
Yeah, it was it was dope. Like we at uh, Saint Andrews, right on 18, we finished and we went over to one of the little pubs, literally across the street. We walked over there, nobody bothered us. Walked in, um, a little Scotch taste. It was it was it was crazy. So I don't know what it would be like now going back, um, but I, it's it's worth the uh, it's worth the effort if I can make it happen. Well, let's talk match 3.0. You, uh, yes. I, I don't know if you, I don't know if you, did you beg your way into it? I mean, I know you were tweeting about, you know, you during the second <laughs> one, you're like, I got to get in the next one. What happened after that? Were, were, were there talks already going on that this was going to nah, happen? That was, you tweet uh, your way into it. Yeah. Sometimes you got to be here, you know, market yourself a little bit. So I, I put that out there <laughs> on Twitter right in the middle of the match. So there's probably right before, you know, Tom hit his, uh, made a shot from the fairway. But, uh, I, from the from the first one they did almost what two years ago uh, with with Tiger and Phil was awesome, and then the way that they uh, they put together uh, awesome four and a half hours whatever it was with just mad fun trash talking good shots terrible shots all the way and everything in between. Um, was looking forward to getting involved and and having fun and competing. And this one's gonna be dope just because obviously there's there's Phil. There's me, there's Peyton, and then way down at the way down there is Chuck. And so he's going to have to, uh, he's going to embarrass himself for sure, but it's just going to be mad fun to rag on him all day. But I think part of it is seeing all type of different levels of golf and, uh, and kind of exposing us a little bit. And then the ability to create a, uh, an opportunity to give back to some of the things that we're passionate about in terms of, you know, uh, contributing to HBCUs across the country, not just Howard, Tuskegee, some other schools. And just you know, again, having fun—that's what golf's all about. Have you played much golf with Chuck? Uh, no. So he, when we play in Lake Tahoe. He's yeah, I've never. I've been in the same group because they would never do that to to us. But he, uh, I've seen, I've seen the hitch. I've tried to imitate it. I almost hurt myself in the promo trying to imitate you know the Chuck swing. Uh, but you can hear him on the course no matter where you're at, and that's the that's the best part about it. He always has fun no matter if he shoots 140 or whatever his best score is it's probably close to that <laughs> well i've been getting word that he's been practicing a lot and he's not worried about his performance are you getting kind of similar tra like pre-event trash talk coming from him already i mean what is he supposed to say though he's supposed to say that's like whatever every golfer's like i got a big match coming i really been you know getting my game right and then when the lights turn on we'll see <laughs> we'll see <laughs> well that's what i'm trying to figure out is that hitch come from only when the lights go on or is it like that for every swing because i've seen some back in the day Back when he was a real athlete, and he could he could move it, man. He could swing it. So I don't I didn't know if that was a thing that was just like every time the camera goes on, that's what it looks like. Yeah, maybe being in quarantine, he's maybe he's uh, exercised some of those uh, those demons away, and he can get back to yeah the more fluid Chuck out there, and and uh, and not take Phil through the worst four and a half hours of his life, <laughs> trying to save himself from every bad position he puts him in. I love the format. It's, it's perfect. It's very like I could already. There's already people kind of arguing over who has the advantage here. Do you have a relationship with Phil at all? I mean, I know Chuck's got to be. It's it's too easy to needle Chuck on the course. Are you going to be able to kind of throw it at Phil? A hundred percent. We played in a pro am event at the Safeway Open uh, up in Napa last year. Uh, that was the first time we got to play, and obviously his reputation in terms of how nice he is and. He, he's he's got the trash talk vibe so he's he'll be good for that but uh we had so much fun just chopping it up during that round and you know fast forward to this it's gonna be more of the same the cool part is i'm gonna try to keep up with him i know he's gonna be coming off you know a master's week and and uh his game is probably dialed in and sharp but uh i have again that irrational confidence i'm gonna try to outdrive him i'm gonna try to stay you know keep <laughs> up with him and try to 
test my game with the with the the true pro that he is. So um, we'll see if he brings another green jacket back, but um, it's going to be awesome. Well, you 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 kind of touched on it there, but I want I do want to highlight what the I guess the purpose of this event is, and and you know you you mentioned what it, what it's kind of about, but I wondered if you could just kind of inform the listeners as to you know what the what the fundraising is for, what the awareness message is for, uh, as we go to kind of preview this event, and and uh, it got me all jacked up, so I'm curious if you uh, what, what's your take on it? No doubt, I mean having the champions for change kind of tag is is uh, kind of standing on the shoulders of 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 my involvement with Howard and. Um, again, HBCUs all across the country that have budding golf programs, but also amazing, you know, universities in general that, uh, again, need their stories told at the end of the day in terms of how meaningful and impactful they are in, in, in their students' lives and in, in the black and brown communities across our country. It's, it's a huge opportunity to, to, uh, you know, highlight them, put them on stage and, and again, for, for, us we get to donate a, a hopefully a lot of money uh to uh to where it needs to be going so excited about the fact that golf can create that impact and that opportunity hopefully have some fun on uh for the viewers that are watching i know vegas bets and all that type of stuff going on it's going to be it's going to be awesome uh an awesome day well, we kind of breezed past this, uh, you know, playing Augusta. First of all, I got to know, did you take it back to the tips or did you play member tees? I played, How many times I played, did you play? I've played both. Um, all right. How big is the difference, one? So it's, I don't know the exact yardage, but I would say probably six or seven holes, you feel like you're playing an entirely different hole. So from one, two is not, not that much of a difference. Three is not much of a difference. Four is a huge difference. Five is... Then you get to seven, uh, 10, 11, and I'm missing one on the back, uh, 18. Those ones, you if you're playing the members and you look back and look where the, where the pro tees are, you're just in shock. But then once you get back there, all the sights and all the lines are different. It's going to be awesome to watch these guys this week with how DJ Bo is going to try to play it. Some of the other guys are going to just try to bomb it everywhere and, and, uh, and figure it out after they get off the tee box. Like... Uh, I'm excited to see it, and obviously in a different time of year, see how the course plays. So it's gonna be dope. Did you post the official number there? And, and uh, if you want to go ahead and use the, the no playing excuse, you go ahead. It was it was a, it was in the middle of the season. We had just come off a okay, of back to back. There you go. Yeah, you know, we flew in the night before. Didn't get much sleep. No, I shot a 79 from the tip. So that's the damn. That's the that's the number. If I ever get the chance to go back, I got to beat. But. uh yeah, so if I'm watching the leaderboard, anybody shoots over 79, I'm basically saying, "Yeah, I beat you that day." So it's all good. <laughs> how are the how spicy were the greens while you're there? I mean, I hear that you know the, the Masters is a very different pace than, than the other week, but I'm just kind of wondering what what's what some of the highlights of that day, of those days were. Yeah, it was uh, well, I birdied the first hole, and so that's partly you almost just want to walk off the course, but like, thanks. Yeah, yeah, just let it rain and let's go in. Let's go grab. Can't get any better than that. Grab some cobbler. No, nah, they said they're they're. Uh, I mean, obviously, like you said, the, the, those conditions when they're in those 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 four days totally different. But it's hard to really talk about how amazing and immaculate that place is. Uh, they say there's not a there's not a weed on the course, and you know the azaleas and the pine needles and all that type of stuff. Um, but for anybody who like if you've never been there and you've watched the Masters year after year after year, you know the course. Like it's like when I got to the first tee and I'm looking around, it's like I feel like I've been here a bunch of different times. But when you get to see the undulation and all that type of change of elevation, um, 
it's 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 once in a lifetime. So I know all the all the patrons that have been down there and um have been in, in attendance and seen it, they can speak to it too. But it's uh it's it's such a such a unique place that has such a different air about it. Well, it's the one course I've been to that, you know, I look at from the tournament tees and I'm kinda like, Yeah, you know, I don't know if I have that shot. I don't <laughs> that, that doesn't look like appealing to me. I, I swear I can do that. I can stand on the tees at Pebble and still know how hard it is. Yeah. And I'm like, I can make it happen in some way. But those undulations around those greens and stuff getting, and all the side hill lies, downhill lies, like that's the part that gets me. I would it would be chunk city. I just me, know I we had part. our caddy and where he's pointing to uh show me the lines. I can only imagine if they're rolling like a thirteen, fourteen and you're above the hole and he's telling you, all right, hit it an inch over here and it's gonna go over here. And you're like <laughs> <laughs> All right, all right, I got it, got it, cool. <laughs> Well, we're, I imagine we're a ways away from, you know, the, the end of your basketball career, but I do want to know what's your competitive golf plan, uh, golf plan like for after basketball? I know I see John Smoltz popping up on like senior tour events and stuff like that. Are you going to switch over to like full-time competitive golf when basketball is done? It won't be full-time, but I, there's an appetite to, you know, figure out what's right. I know you got guys like Tony Romo who, you know, plays in a couple of PGA events on sponsor exemptions or has done some of the mid-am tournaments stuff like that so i'm gonna figure out what's right for me in terms of staying involved in the game on the business side and growing the game but also on the competitive side because you know in eight ten years whenever i'm done uh, there's gonna be a lot left in the tank to uh to see how high or, or how low i should say i could take it um uh, when, when basketball is not a part of it but you know we'll figure that out down the road were you envious at all at all the golf being played inside the bubble in Orlando this what? year? What? Yes. <laughs> As I had my brother was down there and I was talking to Andre Goddard, I was talking to Kent and it seemed like every, if it wasn't practice or obviously when the game started, like there's too many pictures of guys just, you know, in nice yeah. shorts, t-shirts out there, you know, <laughs> um, just bombing it away. So, you know, that was one of the perks of, you know, three months in the bubble. The quick, quick shuttle ride to, to the golf course on your day off, not bad. What's the number one course on your bucket list that you haven't been to yet? Ooh, it's, Pine Valley has been uh, everybody I've talked to that that's been there and heard how amazing it is. I've never played there, so that's that's probably up there. And I'd probably say Whistling Straits. Watching you know the major play there is the, is the PGA. I think was the last one that was there. It, you're on the side of this freaking cliff and the, the the sight lines and the narrow fairways and all that type of stuff. Um, that was that was one probably one and two right there. I don't know how they get Lake Michigan to look like the Caribbean up there. I don't know. I, I swear. I used to live in Chicago, man. It doesn't look like that in Chicago, but up up north, it looks like the Caribbean. Yeah. I don't know how they do that. I don't but, either. A uh, few more, I'll let you get out of here. But uh, you know, I do want to talk the majority of time, you know, uh, about golf. But I'm curious. You know, you touched on this with Bryson and distance and analytics, and you know, we talked a little bit about that earlier, but. I want to know, you know, as we've learned more and more about the advantage of distance in golf, more people are pursuing it. Basketball has kind of gone through something similar with the with the evolution of the three point shot, understanding the value of it. Now, more and more team, you look at shot charts, and at, the mid range game has gotten highly limited, if not eliminated, in the game. When you were, I guess, perfecting the art of the three point shot, did you understand any of that kind of inherently how important it was to the game? Did you see this evolution? coming in any way i know a lot of people kind of credit you with you know starting this evolution but did you know this in advance or was it just you know i'm a shooter and I, we'll see how the chips fall it was more of the latter to be honest i think uh when i my first rookie or my first game my rookie year i think i was like f four for 11 or something like that or 
seven for 11 or something. I was 0 for 1 from three. I shot one three in my first game. And I think, you know, that first year, really trying to find out what type of player I was and trying to develop all my skill set. The three point was a priority in terms of what I worked on, but it didn't really express itself in the game right away. Uh, but there was a moment, probably my fourth year, I think, fourth year in the league, where you realize how much space was out there. And it was almost like the thought process of just try to make the game as, as simple and as easy as possible. And that's where the range started to, to develop. And I actually started to create a perspective like this can benefit me if I can, you know, two, three, two feet behind the three point line is a m big difference. If I can shoot 40% from there, find, you know, good shots there, then that could, uh, that's when the analytics conversation around if you shoot, you know, nine shots and you're shooting nine threes and you're making three of them versus, you know, four three or four two pointers out of nine, the numbers start to make a little bit of a difference. So that's always been kind of a natural progression. I didn't force it, but I always knew that for me, like that was a, uh, a big part of my game. And uh, it happened fast. After that fourth year, it was like, all right, let's let's see how far we can take this. <laughs> Was there ever a time for you when you stopped seeing guys in your face when you shoot? That was always the issue I had on the basketball court. I can I can stroke threes, but if there's a I can't shoot over somebody. You <laughs> seem to have the, like one of the quickest triggers, and you don't ever seem to see the person right in front of you when you go to shoot. Was there ever? Was it always like that? Yeah, it was always like that. It's just a matter of how deep you're confident in taking those shots and extending the range. But we always we had a joke like there's a it's not going to make his inside type of situation. It's not going to make any sense. But we always used to say, like, I don't see nobody. Like, we used to say that all the time on the court for that same reason. That makes sense. Yeah, when we were, you know, if it's training camp and you're working on closeout drills and guy gets up right up into you, that's what you wanted to prove. Like, it doesn't matter what you do, I can still knock this shot down. So, yeah, that's, uh, again, another point of irrational confidence I love to to, to kind of lean on. Uh, this is a, a, this question's pretty broad, but uh, it, I want to know what kind of effect someone like Steve Kerr has had on you. He's, he kind of fascinates me. You know, there's been the, some of those viral clips that have gone, you know, when you've not had your best night, he's in there kind of showing you a chart saying, look, you know, this is what you're doing for us even when you're not making shots. And it, that clip has gone kind of viral as like how you positively reinforce someone. What kind of influence has he, your career really took off once he got to, to Golden State and kind of what, uh, what can you speak to as to what kind of influence he's had? I mean, it's been it's been amazing a journey these last you know six years. But to answer that question, I have to start with Mark Jackson because he was the guy that when, we, when he came in for me and Clay, like gave us the keys to take our game to the next level. When you have somebody that instills that confidence, uh, when we we had proven something, but not anywhere you know to the level we are now. He was the rocket ship that we we leaned on, and he was the ultimate defender in terms of our talent and what we were able to do in the game. And so off of that, when Coach Kerr came in, it was I was in the right frame of mind to accept that next level of direction on what it takes to actually like win at the highest level based on his experience with Phil Jackson and uh, Popovich and being around Mike and Tim Duncan and Tony Parker and all those guys. And so, you know, I was still a sponge at that point, but I had this base of confidence that Coach Jackson had given. And to your point around, you know, some of those clips and the way that he communicates and manages uh, the full game. It's in some of those clips. I was shooting like two for twelve at halftime, or like you know, only getting four shots, but finding other ways to impact the game to help make my teammates better, but just to keep the flow of of everything, knowing that my time would come throughout those forty eight minutes at some point. 
that's been the most consistent thing with coaches. Sometimes it might not show up with you scoring 40. It might show up with you setting, you know, a back screen on somebody to get somebody else open or you making the right play. Uh, but at the end of the day, he knows that when it, it, it's time to kind of try to take over or put the ball in the guy, right guy's hands, he's able to do that and make those adjustments too. So, you know, obviously we've had success. I think every player, player that's played for him would say the same thing on how he communicates and manages expectations from the top down to guy 15. And it takes a, a unique skill set to be able to do that. Well, Paul McGinley said something interesting on the podcast. He said, you know, because he wasn't one of the top, top players in the game, he thought he had an interesting perspective on the game and knew how to get the most out of his players when he was a Ryder Cup captain. I think about that, you know, the top, the best players in the NBA or in all sports don't necessarily translate to being the best coaches, best GMs, but a player like Steve, who was, for, for better or worse, a role player in the NBA, but do you think that that adds to his ability to see the game in any in a different way? The fact that he kind of had to, you know, wasn't blessed with the greatest physical abilities ever, but had a long, sustained career in the NBA. Does that do you see that kind of on display of his understanding and how he translates to coaching? One hundred percent. I think yeah. you can boil it down to two points. One, his appreciation for just being an NBA player and what that means and how hard it is to get to that level. He had to scratch and claw for any opportunity. Uh, he wasn't the most athletic and wasn't the tallest, strongest guy, fastest guy, but, you know, he had a specific skill set and he always had the mindset of, of stay ready. Everybody was talking about in the, in the last dance documentary, he made that huge shot against Utah. And it's like, he was always preparing for that moment, not knowing if it was ever going to come a totally different experience than what Mike and Scotty went through. Uh, so the appreciation for just being at the NBA level and like the hoopla around us from, uh, you know, expectations and the, the stresses that, you know, perceived stresses that we deal with, but always not taking ourselves too seriously on that front. He, 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 he lives that and he speaks on that so much, but also again, his ability to be able to speak to those other role players that make such a difference in championship winning teams. You know, if Mike walked in, to a locker room like he could say it you might believe him but at the end of the day you probably know like just give me the ball and get the hell out of the way like for Steve <laughs> it's like you know I actually live this and I know how important it is to be professional to show up every day get your work in stay ready because you're going to have a, a huge impact on at some point in one game one through 82 but also in the playoffs when the matchup's right when you know it's your time and I press your button be ready to play and you know he lived that experience and so I think it's uh, it's more meaningful hearing it from him, and I think it's more believable in that in that sense because you know he walked in, that, in in those guys' shoes. Mm, that's great perspective. All right, this interview is going to come out next week, so the winner of the Masters is already going to be published. So you're going to look either really really <laughs> smart or really dumb when I ask for your official pick. Who you get one guy? You don't get to name everybody. Just who's your pick to win this week? So my pick, I, I've been going back and forth um, between DJ and Rory. I think this is Rory's year. It's 2020. Like wild stuff's been happening all year. This is his year to yeah. break through. <laughs> so it's not as he can get rid of the April demons and win the Masters in November, and that's his time. Let's just just boil it down to that. Rory in, in November at Augusta, <laughs> he's the champ. I, I love it. I hope that's the case. Well, Stefan, thanks so much for the time. I know you got a busy day out there. Uh, I want to I want to hear some details, some feedback on uh, all your testing that you're doing out there on the at the facility. I know you're I know you're going to get deep in the lab. Word out there, so up. Pumped to hear. Best of luck in the match, man. Appreciate it, man. Thank you. Be the right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. 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 I mean, that's 
Better than most. How about in? That is better than most. Better than most! Expect any 